0: Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while
1: doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Yute Lee. Yute Lee is the creative mind behind about here a YouTube channel dedicated to covering the complex issues surrounding our cities. In addition to the channel, Yute produces the CBC series, Stories About Here. Check out more of his work at youtube.com slash about here. In my interview with Yute, we discuss addressing the missing middle, the heritage dilemma, and a special solution to the housing supply. Without further ado, here's my interview with Yute Lee. Hi, Yute. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Sean. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks. I am super excited to have you on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your work, watching all of your videos online as well as your CBC videos. And we've been in touch over the last few years here. And yes, when I decided to. Start up my podcast again. I knew that I want to have you back on. So, yes, I'm really excited to have you on today and discuss some of these important issues regarding the housing crisis that I think are on a lot of people's minds. So, yeah, really excited about this.
0: Oh, well, it's such an honor
1: to be on the show. And those words mean a lot coming from you, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Perfect. Well, let's get started then. So, it's not like we're going to discuss any super complicated topics just solving canada's housing crisis <laughs> i'm sure we can figure it all out by lunchtime but oh, yeah. right. anyway so let's try to talk about these topics here and again there's no silver bullet to them and this, these are just your personal thoughts but it's always nice to get everybody's uh p- different opinions there especially when you're reading the newspapers and they're always so bearish on housing, saying there's going to be the housing market is going to crash every single month. So it's just kind of nice to have a more balanced discussion on that rather than just always dumping on home ownership. So I hear you. (laughs) So the first topic that I wanted to discuss is missing middle. We often hear, and you did a great video on that there, but we often hear about the lack of housing for the missing middle. First of all, maybe you can talk about for anyone that's not familiar with the term what is the missing middle and yes I mean I know that you're based in Vancouver there but if you're mm-hmm. able to share any thoughts that could apply to other cities but yes maybe you could talk about what is being done to address the missing middle and how cities can do a better job of addressing that there because it seems like there's some people slipping through the cracks and there's not the right type of of properties for them that they're mm-hmm. looking for for sure yeah, so I
0: mean to kind of give some context and try to explain what the missing middle is. The missing middle is describe it as like a phenomenon that you can see in a lot of North American cities and it's basically a situation where a city has a lot of single family houses, single detached houses and a lot of apartment towers, you know, high rises, condominiums and very little you know, type of housing that's in between those sizes. We're talking like townhouses, walk-up apartments, row houses, and sort of those sort of like middle ground between like, you know, lower density housing to really high density housing. And the reason why that happens, I describe it as really ultimately the result of a political dynamic in cities, especially in North America, have had a lot of kind of suburban style housing from the 50s 60s that we kind of have a legacy of but in the sort of i guess like towards the end of the 20th century and more recently we've been trying to develop denser more urban neighborhoods especially in downtown areas but when that sort of housing development gets proposed in you know in a single detached neighborhoods partially due to zoning bylaws but of course due to sort of opposition by local residents those sorts of buildings really end up not built in those sorts of neighborhoods and so what happens is we just pile up a lot of density and housing into single specific spots and usually uncontroversial areas like you know post industrial lands or empty sites or you know near transit hubs and i don't want to say like that's necessarily an evil like awful thing i think there's something to be said about you know transit oriented developments and kind of really high density towers i'm not Bashing high density towers, but you're right that there is this kind of gap that's created in the market for, for families who would definitely benefit from more of a ground oriented unit like a townhouse or a walk up, but don't necessarily have the finances to get into a single detached house, especially in a city like Vancouver. So I think that's something that really I feel like a lot of that. I mean, it's definitely a part. I'm not going to say it's the silver bullet, but it's a part of addressing our housing crisis. Is You know, creating this sort of housing that's really this middle ground between, you know, single detached housing, which is honestly, you know, out of most people's reach in certain metro contexts like Vancouver and Toronto and high rises.
1: So, how's that for an explanation? (laughs) Pretty good. I think we're part of the way there on solving the housing crisis, but (laughs) we don't want to take too much credit for that. But yes, that's a great explanation there. And that was very well said because the issue with, Condos is that they can be great when you're just starting out living on your own or living with your partner. But then when you're ready to start a family, I mean, it's not so easy in a cramped condo there. And the problem is that there's not a lot of bigger condo units. There are very few. I believe you might have discussed this in, in one of your videos here, but like usually it's one bedroom, two bedrooms are more mm, rare. Yeah. Like three bedrooms, do those even really exist there. And then the problem is you really need to make that leap right to the single family home. And there is a lack of townhouses there. So yeah, definitely it's important to address that missing Mm -hmm. middle because not everybody like going from one extreme to the next, like going from a condo to a house, there really needs to be that kind of rung on the ladder that helps you get from one housing type to the next. Um,
0: That's a good way to put it for sure it can be a a rung on the ladder too. It's definitely, you know, right now it does feel very polarized. And, you know, I don't want to maybe talk too broadly here, but I feel like there is even like, it results in a bit more of a cultural divide. Whereas people have argued that too, where, you know, there is like a downtown and then there's, you know, sort of the neighborhoods outside of downtown and it ends up being quite adversarial. You know, people will point to those new towers being pointed and uh, being constructed in a city and really oppose any kind of development in a neighborhood because it is just creates that really jarring kind of dynamic. (laughs) So yeah, like if all the examples we have of new housing are just, you know, 20, 30 story plus high rises, I would understand why, you know, a single detached neighborhood would be wary of new developments in their, in their backyard.
1: Yes, very well said. And another issue that we see crop up in cities all across Canada, not just Vancouver, Toronto, other cities like that is around, like you had a video called The Heritage Dilemma, Mm -hmm. and I guess it's kind of a fine balancing act, like they want to protect the history and heritage of an area, but that can hold back an area from building more affordable housing and also putting the land to better use. So maybe you can just talk a bit about that from the housing supply standpoint, and just mention some of the more interesting points you spoke about in in your video there. For sure.
0: And I will try to just walk very carefully around this topic, because I absolutely understand, you know, heritage and kind of protecting the spaces we really love in our city that hold cultural value. It's an important part of urban planning, really. So that video i made I made it specifically about the topic of heritage districts. So this is sort of a more recent policy that's become popular in cities really right across Canada, where instead of protecting single individual buildings, we protect entire swaths of neighborhoods. Here in Vancouver, the primary example I point to is a neighborhood called Shaughnessy. It's about, gosh, I'm trying to top of my head, try to figure out a percentage I think there's like maybe like 150 to, to 200 houses in this neighborhood that, because of this policy, we've kind of all protected as like the Shaughnessy Heritage District. And for me, when I saw that happening, I couldn't help but feel a bit of concern that, you know, I think there's something about protecting individual buildings, but as soon as you protect an, a whole neighborhood of houses, You get into this area where, yes, you are having a much broader impact now on housing supply and the creation of new housing supply, but also just it aligns a little bit more politically, conveniently aligns a bit more politically with the interests of, you know, wealthy homeowners in that area who would really not prefer any kind of new housing to be built. And they use heritage policies such as this to kind of prevent that. For context, Shaughnessy is, you know, yes, full of nice beautiful old houses but it's also basically a mansion district they're all you know we're talking like 10 15 million dollar heritage homes right in the part i would say of vancouver you know just outside of the downtown center so to me you know like i think when you create sort of like a broad sort of heritage district you know i don't know really who that's benefiting other than the people who live in them right Like if we're protecting heritage so that other people, so that like the general public can really pass by and admire and, you know, really be exposed to our city's history, that's one thing. But, you know, if you're just protecting like a big neighborhood from any kind of change at all, it really does end up becoming, you know, a heritage district for the people living in the heritage district, but not really a place that people would go visit and really kind of take in themselves. So for me, I actually, like when I think of heritage, like I love heritage that's kind of blended in and mixed in with the existing urban fabric. You know, I looked at places like the West End where you do have mansions that are left over from the 1920s and 30s, but people have built up apartment towers as well and other sorts of housing and kind of, you know, general density so that it's very sort of, you know, the the heritage feels like it's a public good in those contexts. Something that anyone can kind of admire and take in and walk past on their way to work.
1: No, that's very well said. I mean, I'm I fall somewhere in the middle as well, not to put words in your mouth, but I like when like I'm not a big fan of painting a broad strokes in a whole area and designating it as a heritage area unless it really makes sense. I like mixing heritage with modern buildings, the way that they've done it with some Baseball stadiums in the US, where they basically fit in the old heritage buildings with the brand new baseball stadiums. I mean, that's kind of, I guess, an extreme example there. But my point is, it doesn't have to be all one or the other. I mean, I like when it's a mix of heritage as well as newer buildings. And it's pretty cool. Like, I don't know if you can think of any buildings off the top of your head there, but I like how Hmm. they keep the bones of the heritage building and then. Build the new building in combination with that. I mean, there's examples around the world. Like the first thing that comes to mind is with some of these baseball stadiums in the US. But I mean, I'm a fan of when they're able to kind of combine two into one while still increasing the housing supply.
0: Absolutely. I think for sure some of my favorite examples come from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And that's a city that, you know, you can't touch a single building without touching a building that's like, you know, centuries old. So they've really come up with very like ingenious ways and not like you know not that it's completely unique to Halifax. I think it happens kind of all over the world and whatnot, but where they, you know, they preserve the heritage building in the first floor or first two floors, however big the heritage building is, but they'll add more density on top of it. And you know, this gets into an interesting question of like, you know, what does he- preserving heritage look like, right? You know, is it only heritage if you preserve just the building and build nothing else on top of it and don't taint it in any way. You know, it's what's kind of like that Greek philosophers' question. I forget what it is, but it's you know, like you know, if you have a boat, and then over ten years, like you end up replacing every piece of the boat, you still have the same boat. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so I think like there is like this kind of more nuanced discussion that heritage protection honestly deserves, which is you know thoughts around yeah, like what does heritage protection look like? What are we protecting heritage for? And I think. You know, the whole heritage district, this very like, you know, heavy handed kind of wide reaching sort of policy really misses the opportunity to have those sorts of conversations.
1: No, very well said. And I think you're the first person ever to quote a Greek philosopher <laughs> on my podcast. So that was pretty cool was the there. For so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So you're the first one, hopefully not the last, but that was pretty cool. So, Yeah, I'm just curious, like we've touched on it within this podcast here, but it seems housing density and issues around housing supply is so politicized. It seems like the right decisions aren't made because of, for political reasons, people are worried about getting reelected. And it seems like powerful, special groups push their political power to make sure things don't happen. Like, for example, I mean, not to go off topic, but in Toronto, it happens all the time. For example, areas to make them more livable, we're looking at like doing complete streets, like making the right. streets for everyone, making them for pedestrians, making them for cyclists, making them better for businesses. But for example, a neighborhood in Toronto, Rosedale, like the the hmm. wealthy homeowners there just push back and. Wanted the status quo, and it really took a lot of grassroots efforts to actually get anything done. But it seems like there's a lot of NIMBYism and people that carry political kind of put the kibosh on certain things. So I'm just curious your thoughts on how to make housing less political and actually get housing built, because it seems like it's a pretty controversial topic a lot of the time, unless you're kind of doing some of those easy projects that you were talking about on like, you know, industrial lands and stuff like oh, that. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, I think to some extent, housing will always be something that's political and because it is something that's tangible and it's impacting people's neighborhoods, their backyards. You know, when a new development comes up, it is something that you will have feelings about. So, you know, I think the only option we really have, I guess, in a democracy like ours is to try to make the discourse around housing a little bit better. Oh, I mean, I guess there is like, you know, some argument maybe for like delegating, you know, housing controls, taking away powers from municipalities and giving them to provincial governments or federal governments. But that's a whole other can of worms. I'm not going to get into that (laughs) for today. But I think, you know, where I come from is really just improving the education and discourse around housing is really step one for me. Just, you know, I think the average person really just cares about living in a good community, having housing that is affordable to them for their children and their children's children. You know, there's some real basic pragmatic things that I think everyone can agree with. But it's when you get into the weeds of like how to sort of add new housing supply or, you know, keep housing affordable, that's when things get a little bit more challenging and definitely more complicated. So, you know, I think just having more public awareness about those sorts of issues is really step one you know, in tandem with that, I think for sure with, for policymakers, it's important to differentiate, you know, between a valid citizen's concern and what I would describe as very exclusionary kind of classist nimbyism. I mean, you mentioned Rosedale, right? Like, I think that's the kind of brand of citizen, you know, input that I honestly feel comes from the wrong place. It's, and it's coming from a place of like, you know we want to preserve a wealthy exclusive neighborhood that you know nobody else can really partake in and to me that and i'm not sure that's really the values that everyone else kind of has <laughs> but yeah i think more specifically speaking around housing and you know how we talk about the housing crisis i've always liked to frame it this way i actually think the solutions to the housing crisis are rather simple and pretty straightforward or we have simple and straightforward solutions to the housing crisis when you really think about it but it's they're all solutions that people are would be very uncomfortable with you know what I mean uh yes in theory we could you know remove all zoning regulations and all you know development processes and just let the private market build as much supply as it wants to wherever. And I'm sure that might be an appealing idea to some people, but I know that's a very, very concerning idea to others. And the same token, we could also completely remove any kind of financialization from the housing market, remove, completely bar people from buying second properties or foreign investors or banks from even investing into property. And I'm sure that would be an appealing solution for some people, but it would be a disastrous solution for, for other people. And so like, I think that's kind of what I like to... Make clear is like it's to some extent there's a conflict of values and strategies that's happening as well when it comes to housing. So, yeah, it's just good to know <laughs> about what those sort of menu of items are rather than really trying to say it's like being too black and white on any one sort of solution.
1: Yes, very well said. Like we said earlier, there's really no silver bullet. But yeah, I think public consultation is key, not just ramming things through, because that's really how you build the consensus and the support. But like you said, housing is always going to be political by nature. But yeah, definitely, there's a better way to do it without leading to like, I think, you know, not just ramming things through consulting with the local people and taking their input and and their thoughts seriously, because like traffic is always a concern. But you can, if people feel like they're being heard, and you're doing things to mitigate the effects of traffic, that's when I think you can build more support for things like that. Because yeah, I mean, not to go off topic, but I heard like in Vancouver, as an example, people weren't really necessarily supportive of bike lanes originally. But then when they actually saw the figures that it actually boosted business and helped things, the businesses are actually supporting it rather than pushing back against it. So I think once you actually listen to people and show them that their thoughts are being taken seriously, and once they see that, you know, allowing a certain type of property into their area is not going to destroy it. Then they'll be more like open-minded to that going forward. Totally, totally,
0: yeah. I'd say it's a combination of presenting really good information and earnestly engaging with you know residents nearby those sorts of projects. But I also do see a real need for political will and for planners and councilors and mayors to kind of advocate for what they want
1: and you know, not let it die on the shelf of reports. Yeah, Great. And we have about a couple minutes left here, but I just mm-hmm. wanted to get any more thoughts that you had to share on the housing supply crisis. Anything else interesting that we haven't talked about, like about zoning regulation, like in Ontario right now, a big topic mm-hmm. is cutting the red tape and just getting as much housing built as possible. Maybe you can share some interesting tidbits of what Vancouver has done to see success in in that area that other parts of Canada might be able to learn from?
0: I mean, I'm not sure if we've seen success necessarily, but I think, you know, Vancouver, like Toronto, definitely has a real, you know, a zoning landscape that is really common in most cities where you have certain areas, like the downtown, certain transit corridors, certain specific sites where we've piled up a lot of housing supply, and then we've left most of the other sort of, I guess, single detached neighbors, we call them RS1 zones. We've really left those kind of more or less the same over the years. But I think, you know, one sort of interesting tidbit that really was, that stuck with me when I was doing that video on the missing middle was, you know, I was looking at, you know, why did we come up with these zoning bylaws in the first place? What was their purpose? And what you realize is like it's a messy history, and I'm not, not sure it's a history that applies to us today. So, you know, in the initially in the past, you know, cities had a lot of concerns around pollution, overcrowding, a lot of really what is it, a big and rather valid concerns about, you know, uh, density. And so zoning was kind of a response to that to basically create neighborhoods where you would have. Very little risk of overcrowding, very little risk of fires and other sorts of, you know, I got, gosh, sort of threats. And, you know, that's kind of one sort of valid reason. Not sure if it really applies today, but I think I can understand where it comes from there. But the other sort of concerning thing I really found was that a lot of it was motivated by racism and classism. I mean, here in Vancouver, the zoning bylaw came right around when there was influx of Chinese immigrants to work on the railroads here. And if you look at sort of political cartoons from the time and sort of the writing from the time, there's a real fear of allowing housing, like apartments that would house, you know, Chinese immigrants into white neighborhoods. And, you know, that story rings true for, even more true in American cities where it's, you know, black and white neighborhoods that are, you know, uh, basically being sort of segregated via zoning process. So. I feel like when you kind of look at it that way, it makes you wonder if that sort of regulatory framework is applicable in this sort of contemporary context.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at sean, that's S-E-A-N at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.BurnYourMortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the burn your mortgage podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating until
0: next time. Happy mortgage burning.